breaker one, breaker one might be crazy, but I ain't dumb. Crazy cooter coming at you. Hey, fast line, fast track. Y'all got your ears on out there? John Deere to New Holland. Just look at the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown, backing up traffic all the way to town. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this episode, we learn about the upcoming Virtual Agricultural Safety Summit, and we hear about what the folks at ASGRO are doing to prepare for the upcoming soybean growing season. Then we take you to Indianapolis, Indiana for the Corn Warriors Season 4 crowning ceremony, and we learn about a new soybean competition from Corn Warriors creator Seth Wood. Jesse Allen is along to break down the March WASDE report on Market Talk, and the Hot Rod Farmer Ray Bohax is along with another installment of Bushels and Scents. Finally, we hear the great traditional country music sounds of New York's Ken Wilbur. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, first up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, Agricultural Safety Summit is coming up March 22nd through the 24th. The interactive online forum is designed for risk managers, agriculture industry leaders, researchers, educators, government officials, and others interested in improving worker safety in one of the nation's most hazardous industries. So today I wanted to bring in Jess McClure, the board chair of the Agricultural Safety and Health Council of America and vice president of safety and regulatory affairs at the National Grain and Feed Association to talk a bit about the ASHCA and about this fine event. Jess, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hi, Brent. Good morning. So before we get going here on this event that you have coming up uh, later on in the month, tell me a bit about the ASHCA and its mission. Sure. Uh, ASHCA, the Agricultural Safety and Health Council of America, it was founded in 2007, and our mission is to proactively address the ongoing and emerging occupational uh, safety and health issues affecting everyone within U.S. agriculture. So our membership, we're essentially a coalition of farms, ranches, producer associations, and other related agricultural people, organizations, and businesses. So we work with um, other uh, safety associations, federal and state agencies, educational institutions, and safety professionals, all seeking to improve the health and safety of ag workers. So you can call us essentially clearinghouse when it comes to agricultural safety for uh, the the full spectrum, so to speak, between professionals, uh, educators, uh, producers, all these types of groups all working together to address safety. And roughly how many members do you guys have today? So uh, we have over, uh, I would say uh, over a hundred uh, when you're talking about the uh, individual organizations and individuals themselves, so that we have as the actual members within the group. So the mission of the group and the message of the Agricultural Safety Summit here is that safety in agricultural production can't just be left to regulators. All who are participants need to have an active hand in having a safe workplace. And, and that's something that is really going to be stressed here uh, throughout this conference. Correct. I mean, basically what our, our, um, our mission, we want to work to coordinate and share the state-of-the-art 
safety information and programs that address these uh, occupational hazards. Uh, and obviously there's a, a great diversity within agricultural business and commodities. There's all types of new technologies. There's a changing profile of workers. And that's why having all of these different types of groups together, working together to share this information, and then we can um, get this information out. So there's what we offer as a, as a, as a, as a vehicle, so to speak, that uh, by having this, uh, uh, this knowledge and information, because many of this, there's many programs that have already been developed and that are out there. We don't try to, we, I would say we don't try to create anything new. Yeah. What we're always trying to do is to make sure that we can steer these different uh, groups, these different parts of our uh, membership of our organization in the right direction on where they can get that type of information. When you've got a top-notch keynote speaker and Dr. John Howard, the director of the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, which is part of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and he's going to discuss emerging issues in agricultural occupational safety, including specific efforts to keep workers safe during COVID. And I know that's an ongoing challenge. Correct. Uh, when you look at the impact of the pandemic on the worker protection, um, I think we have to look at lessons learned. Um, uh, from large operations as well as the small and mid-sized farms. And I think having uh, Dr. Howard in there to address that issue and then what we plan to do after he gives the keynote talking about this, then what we plan to do from the summit side is looking at it from the daily operations for large, small size organizations, sharing those best practices, right? So I think that goes to show um, our organization by having somebody like Dr. Howard, by having academics, having educators, universities that are members of, of, uh, of ASHCA, and then how that information applies to the other members that we have, such as the, uh, the, the farm operations, the producers. And so I think that's where both sides can learn, right? You can have those that are on the production side and they can get that information from the academic side and vice versa. What's happening on the production side, the academics can use that to help um, it, it helps them from the research side, you know, what are some areas that we should focus on from research that could really then help us develop tools that can better um, address safety at the production level. And another interesting feature of this conference is going to be tools of the trade, which will be video demonstrations to spotlight interactive safety tools. Tell us a bit about that. So usually the way this is interesting because it's virtual. Usually what we, we, the tools of the trade, we usually call them lightning talks. And the lightning talks would be something that you could have, say, if we were to have an in-person meeting, you could have some of those, uh, the academics, those that have developed research projects to kind of give a brief five minute, put, post their poster, so to speak, describing what their research is, having that in an area where there's a lot of the participants, say, if you had a reception type area. So now what we're going to do is try to put that in a virtual setting. So it's kind of a tools of the trade. It's kind of like a, a five-minute brief presentation on what are some of the um, uh, research projects that uh, that some of the that have been developed and what do they address? And this is where there's the um, applications are submitted, and we have a committee that reviews them to determine okay, what are some of these projects that we think would be worthwhile to be uh, addressed during the summit. So some of the other topics that are going to be addressed here, dealing with marijuana and opioids in the workplace, heat and other extreme weather, child care model programs, immigration policy and worker housing, and also emerging technology. So uh, quite a lot on the plate there. So there's a wide range of issues, a wide range of, uh, of those that are involved in these issues. Obviously, uh, many of these are day-to-day -day issues that 
uh, as we were saying from the production side, you know, both large and small scale that they have to deal with. And so that's why this is a, an opportunity for the uh, exchange of that information. And also a screening of the movie Silo will be on the agenda. And I know that's one we've talked about quite a bit here on the show, just the impact that that movie has and the stark reminder that it is that uh, you can never let your guard down uh, on the farm. Yeah, and I, I would say from, from my, I, as I said, I wear two hats, right? So my, my full-time job with the National Grain and Feed Association, obviously um, uh, in, engulfment, entrapment prevention is a critical issue in grain handling. So from the NGFA side, you know, we represent the grain feed processing industry. And obviously grain handling at a grain elevator is critical. And that's why this movie silo is very important, right? So from the grain handling side, we always want to work with our, uh, with the producers who are the customers, right? To make sure they know about safety and the, and, and, uh, and, and knowing, you know, when you should and shouldn't go into a bin. And if you do go into bin, what you, what you should, and shouldn't be doing and that's why this movie is very uh i think is 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 um is very important and and uh and it really um seeing that the the impact of what can happen if you don't do it the right way and we in gfa we've shown this movie silo with some of the events that we've had and it's always gotten a very positive review and i think having a discussion to a panel discussion that i'll participate in uh, along with Marcia Salswadel and uh, the director of, of the movie. Well, as much as we beat the drum about this and as much education as there is out there on, on safety in grain handling, we are still hearing about far too many of these accidents. So I hope people will take heed to that. We'll watch the movie and uh, this will be an extra reminder to use caution. If folks want to know more about this conference or they want to get signed up, how can they go about doing that? I would say go to the um, go to ashka.org uh, and on there we have all the information that you need uh, to register. We have uh, as far as the, the full agenda they, uh, that you just described, Brent, and as well as the um, uh, link to register for the event. And obviously, since this is going to be virtual, um, we have both a member and non-member uh, rate. Uh, and it's going to be, as you mentioned, the 22nd through the 24th. So obviously it's going to be over a three-day period. Um, and one item, too, that I think is worth mentioning that we it's not here on any of the promotional material, but uh, we are currently in the process of working with the Board of Certified Safety Professionals on developing um, uh, MOU on how we can work to both organizations work together to promote safety. And we're hoping... Uh, if everything goes right and, you know, it's the virtual world that we're doing these events and we're going to be having uh, a signing ceremony uh, for this MOU uh, after um, uh, after Dr. Howard's um, keynote presentation. Well, that's exciting because the industry is definitely stronger when everybody's pulling in the same direction. So I hope you go and check that out and go log on to ashca.org. Again, ashca.org. Check out all you need to know about that convention. Get registered and uh, get your mind on agricultural safety. And Jess, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. We welcome you to come back anytime and keep us updated on the latest with the organization. Well, Brent, appreciate the uh, invitation and look forward to, to talking with you again in the near future. 
Chandler Equipment. For 51 years, Chandler Equipment has been manufacturing excellence. The finest quality in pull type and truck mount fertilizer lime spreaders and litter spreaders, fertilizer tenders, seed tenders, and litter conveyors. They also sell a full line of Raven Industries Precision Ag products. To find out more about the full Chandler product line or to find a Chandler Equipment dealer near you, visit ChandlerEquipment.net or give them a call at 800-243-3319. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, Plant 2021 is right upon us, and now's the time to be thinking about your seed, your fertilizer, your other inputs, and the strategy for getting the most yield possible. And we wanted to bring in today Clint Chaffer, who is the brand manager with Asgro, to talk about things you should be thinking about when you hit the field to plant soybeans this spring. And Clint, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Well, I tell you what, this is the time of year when everybody starts to get excited. Uh, everybody's been cooling their heels here for the winter, and uh, we've got some warmer temperatures and and a lot of melting going on around the country, a lot of uh, people ready to hit those fields. Uh, first of all, uh, how are you guys preparing? Yeah, I mean, uh, as we're just starting to have those uh, those conversations, I know people are starting to, to like, like you said, winter's gone and starting to move around and uh, and starting to have those conversations about uh, what needs to go on the ground. So I know a lot of our uh, our dealers are talking to their farmers and uh, and pushing seed around and uh, getting getting everything ready. Uh-huh. From your standpoint, what are some of the common questions that you are asked by by uh, dealers and farmers alike? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it uh, comes down to hey, what's uh, what's the right solution for for my field, right? And, uh, and that's where I think, uh, you know, here at Asbro, we have, uh, exclusive genetics, uh, some of the highest performing on the market. And, uh, and then also paired up with our extend flex trait to add that ultimate flexibility. Uh, it's a great place to start and, uh, and a great portfolio to, uh, to look into. So break down extend flex for me and, and tell me a little bit about why farmers should be considering it. Yeah, so again, uh, extend flex paired up with Asbro's, uh, exclusive genetics just, Ultimately, you're starting with the higher, highest yield potential that you can have, uh, as well as then the ease of flexibility with the added glufosinate trait uh, that's added into uh, to the ExtendFlex uh, system. So that's where it really adds that additional choice and flexibility for our farmers to really tailor it right down to your field needs. Well, and one of the things that we've been seeing a lot of here are changing weather patterns over the past few years and uh, later growing seasons, earlier harvest seasons. Uh, how can Asgro help you uh, maximize yield in those conditions? Yeah, so I mean, a, a lot of that comes back down to our, you know, our, our basically our a Bayer's breeding engine, right? Uh, it's a robust global engine. Uh, and then also down to our product testing. You know, farmers and, and dealers uh, can be confident that our products have all been vigorously tested in all sorts of different environments. Uh, across the entire nation, right? Uh, and this really comes down to, you know, being able to see the benefits after they've been tested for that improved yield, weed control, uh, emergence, standability, plant health and vigor, and even disease test tolerance such as uh, uh, sudden death syndrome. And with our portfolio, I mentioned uh, ExtendFlex, we're actually releasing 47 new ExtendFlex varieties uh, for the 2021 season. And again, with all of those different traits, you can really pick and choose what is the right, uh, you know, maturity group for, for your needs uh, and really what's the, what's the best uh, mix of, uh, of all of those different uh, attributes that I talked about to really be able to go in and choose those right, uh, right varieties. 
Well, I tell you what, there's a whole lot to like here. If folks want to investigate for themselves, where can they go check out Asgro? We'd point everybody to, uh, to, to asgro.com where they can uh, see all the different varieties available for their specific area. But uh, what we always like to point people as well is go to your uh, local DeKalb Asgro dealer. I mean, they'll, they'll know all the right products for, for your area. So uh, those, are, those are our local experts that we lean on. Well, go ahead and check them out. And Clint, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Again, that's Clint Chaffer with Asgro. Make sure you come back again next week to hear from agronomists with Asgro and DeKalb as they discuss considerations you should make before heading into the field to plant soybeans and corn this spring. World Ag Expo Online is not just one week. We'll be here all year long with new information, seminars, links to exhibitors, and more. Mark your calendar to make sure you visit the show website every month. Want to get monthly reminders of updated news and information? Go to worldagexpo.org to sign up for the email newsletter. More than 600 online exhibitors coming from 48 states and 65 countries. Attendance is free for the online show throughout 2021. Just go to worldagexpo.org. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track on Saturday, March 6th in Indianapolis, the Corn Warriors television show held its crowning ceremony at the JW Marriott Hotel. We were there to share in the festivities and had a chance to speak with a few of the contestants. Also at that event, the creators of the show held the dining ceremony for the winner of season one of The Podfather, a companion show about a soybean growing competition that launched this week on RFD TV. We can't share with you the winner of that competition until the end of the season, but while at the ceremony, we did get a chance to catch up with Corn Warriors Season 4 champion, Kevin Cobb of Dubois, Indiana. The champ is here, Kevin Cobb. Corn Warriors, Season 4 champion. Congratulations, man. Thank you very much. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> and you've been one of the stalwarts of this show here, man. And every year, uh, right in there battling, and this year got it done. What was the difference this year? David wasn't in it. <laughs> no, I, I think, um, you know, management, you know, we're, we're, we're able to uh, handle dry weather a little bit better now. Um, we know what to crop needs dry weather and what it don't so you know we can fine-tune our management now for the dry weather anything you did differently this year than years past uh we we tried strip tilling you know that was a little different thing um you know we, we ain't got that figured out but i do like to strip till uh seed bed you know we're actually looking for a just a strip till bar yet for this spring um you know we're running more humix Every year, it seems like we run every year, we up our humic, you know, from Monty's uh, plant food. Um, they, they have a fantastic humic product. Um, so, you know, between that and the sugars, you know, our, our base fertilized package don't really don't change a whole lot, but, you know, our sugar and the humics are probably the things that really go up more and more all the time. In the roundtable discussion here in Indianapolis, you talked about just how much these hybrids have changed over the past eight years. Is it amazing to see how much, and, and even since before then, since before you started, how much ground they've made in the past uh, decade or so? All these, I don't care if you plant decob, agrigold, I mean, pioneer, I mean, these hybrids anymore. I'm not saying we want another 2012 drought year, but uh, it would be neat to see how they would handle you know, uh, the 2012 weather, you know, I'm just, you know, we wasn't as hot as what we were in 2012 this year, but we were as dry. Um, so, and grow fan fantastic corn this year. So, 
these these sea corn companies hats off to them you know they're 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 doing a hell of a job on, on breeding tell me about the midwest advanced crop consulting because that seems like that's kind of been the uh uh a driving force here over the past couple of years a lot of information shared there and learning experiences and it's really benefiting the whole industry yeah we we um started this two years ago uh me and terry vissing and uh ryan and kent probes from illinois terry's from uh, marysville indiana um, we started this to help educate the farmers um, you know the knowledge that i've learned through growing high yielding uh, crops uh, the do's and the don'ts you know to try to bring them up to pace or so they don't have to make the same mistakes that we did for you know the first 10 12 years of our lives so uh, i gotta say you know i'm pretty proud last year we had uh 13 growers that never grew 300 bushel corn ever um, broke three, uh, 300 bushel this year so 13 growers in our group did on the first year so um, I'm really really ecstatic about that can't wait till this year uh, I think we'll have close to 50 percent I'm guessing that we'll break uh, 300 bushel corn in our group so pretty happy with that yeah, I tell you what man uh a new season coming up, anything, uh, any exciting things, any any nervousness? Are you just ready to rock and roll here? Oh, I'm ready. Um, you know, excited about 2021. Um, got a few new tricks up our sleeve that we're going to try, which, you know, you can't get no better if you don't try something. So, you know, we've been cracking on this 400 bushel now for, you know, I thought, thought the last eight years we've been pretty legitimate shot at getting or seven years, I guess, last seven years, we had a legitimate shot of breaking 400. Uh, been knocking on its door really hard, so maybe this year we can we can bust that 400 uh, number. So, yeah, let's get it going. <laughs> well, man, uh, anything about the show? Are you still still having fun doing the show? Is that, It looks like uh, you're one of the guys that's really just uh, warmed up to it and, and had a lot of fun with it. Well, like I said, I mean, the show is, is if I'm sitting there as a – fan or as a farm another farmer looking at it i mean it's pretty hard to go anyplace else and and learn from five or six really good corn growers you know i mean you got some in in the corn world you got some damn good corn growers in it so uh you know the, the main thing is we want to educate people you know um, you know throw a little drama in there but main thing is educate help people out a little bit and the commodity that we got, like I said, Brooks, you know, I didn't know him two years ago. Now we've become pretty darn close friends. Uh, I just don't want him to beat me yet. <laughs> so, uh, no, let's let's rock and roll. Bring it on, 21-21. The beginning of a dynasty. <laughs> I don't know. I will say this. Um, my daughter, uh, Ryland, which is 16, uh, she entered in the contest for the first time this year. Um, she finished second in our class. I, I beat her, but um, I think about a year or two she'll be she'll be whipping dad. So uh, that'll be kind of a my competition will be trying to beat her all the time. So she's she's gonna be pretty good. She knows her stuff already. She does, and a lot of confidence, and also a heck of a basketball player as well. Well, <laughs> you know, I always tell her it don't matter if it's growing corn or farming or in life. You know, whatever you do, you got to work hard. You know, don't be happy with being stagnant. Um, don't don't be happy with being average. You know, so 
she's putting in the work now. Um, you know, I love basketball, and um, I got her lifting weights now. Actually, all the kids are lifting weights now and trying to get strong, and that's what it takes to, you know, you got to put the extra work in to be good at basketball and to, to be good at growing corn. You know, you just, it takes work, you know, so. Oh, let's hope. <laughs> I can't imagine anybody out there is working any harder than Kevin Cobb. So, Kevin, congratulations on this crown. Uh, hopefully it's the first many to come for you. Uh, that would be good. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate you guys having us on. Well, next up here, I want to touch base with Brooks Cardinal, who just wrapped up season two of Corn Warriors in season four, his second season. Brooks, how you been, man? Doing good. How are you? I'm doing good, man. We caught up with you in the summertime, and you were right in the thick of things. Uh, how, how do you sum up how you guys finished up this year? You know, we were a little disappointed. We we had a lot of struggles uh, with the weather. Uh, it got hot and dry on us. Um, you know, we do irrigate. A lot of our acres are irrigated, and our contest, of course, is irrigated. But, you know, we were hot and dry at the worst time. And it's just, it even with irrigations and water, and it's hard to keep up sometimes. So, you know, we lost a lot of yield there. Um, pollination didn't go as good as we like to see and then you know after pollination we had you know a week or two uh, finally got some rains but with the rains we had you know seven ten days straight of cloudy days and we, we aborted kernels in just just uh, weather wasn't on our side this year yeah well and I tell you you guys talked about this in the uh, roundtable uh, panel discussion here up in Indianapolis uh, you know, every year it seems like you're chasing weather in, in one direction or another, but planting seasons keep getting pushed further and further back. Now we're looking at plant 21. What, what, what are you thinking as you get into this new planting season? Well, first of all, we're just excited about the commodity prices. You know, it looks like there's going to be an opportunity to make some money this year. And, and um, you know, that gives us opportunity to try new things, you know, when, when we see, you know, we're going to make some money. And, you know, that gives us an opportunity to learn. But, um, you know, we're, we're, AgriGo's got some new hybrids we're um, planting this year. Um, we've had it in a hybrid trial plot in some of our higher managed ground. And, um, you know, some of these uh, numbers, these big players we've had been playing with are getting some age on them. And pretty exciting, you know, to see a new lineup coming up. Anything that you guys learned over this past growing season that you'll take into the new season or anything that really excites you about it? Yeah, I mean... We learn every year and, you know, it's not just the products you apply, it's timing. And I, I got to say, you know, I feel like we got a lot of our products in line, but we're kind of moving our timing around. So I'm kind of excited to uh, what I learned, you know, these last couple of years on timing. I'm adjusting that a little bit and looking forward to seeing if we gain anything from that. You talk about applying products. You guys went to the Hagee this year. How did that work out for you? The Hagee's pretty awesome. Um, you know, we did all our own fungicide with the Hagee, and then we wide drop. We got uh, the 360 wide drops on the Hagee, and, you know, so it's allowing us to do a later application um, of side dressing. And, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing machine. And uh, when we talked uh, last time, we had actually talked at uh, Kevin Cobb's farm over the summer, and uh, you guys have, have uh, built quite a kinship there, and, uh, and uh, you got the Matt group going on. A lot, uh, a lot of uh, strength there in uh, being able to uh, kind of collaborate a bit. Oh, yeah. Kevin's a great guy. Uh, we, we have become really good friends. And, um, yeah, it's something pretty special there. And, and I got to thank the show for that, you know. I mean, um, it's introduced me to a lot of great people. 
Um, so yeah, we've become good friends. He's been tremendous help for our operation. Um, then we did join the Mac group with him, and you know, with him and all the other members, you know, that's that's huge networking going on there. And and um, yeah, it, it's it's been great. Yeah, you talk about the show. What has it been like? The, the actual filming of the show is it something that you've gotten comfortable with? No, I mean, I've, I'm getting better, but I, I'm not great with a camera in my face. But um, it, it it is getting better, but it ain't that bad. Do you get to times where you don't even realize it's there? I don't. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these other guys do, but no, I always. <laughs> it's hard for me to get used to it and be 100% comfortable with it, but it ain't bad. I imagine it always seems to be around at the wrong times, huh? Yeah, um, there's always something going on when Seth rolls in. So, yeah, I think he's, uh, I don't know, he's, he must have a hidden camera or something. And no, he does time the worst times possible. That's when he comes out. That makes for good TV, though. That's right. That's what he says, too. Well, I'll tell you what, Brooks, it's a pleasure talking with you again, man. We wish you the best of luck. We hope we can get out uh, as early as possible here for Plant 21, and we'll uh, be paying attention. All right, thanks a lot. And sticking with the Corn Warriors, next up, we want to talk with Jake Droz, who is the rookie on the show, one of two. And, uh, man, welcome back to the show. We had you on earlier on. How you been? Oh, it's it's been good. Uh, yeah, 2020 is finally over, thank God. Uh, yeah, just looking forward to 21. <laughs> what did you learn from that whole experience uh, being on the show this first season? Uh, that there's, you know... A lot of people, you know, all these other growers that are on the show, you know, people you can learn from and, you know, just learn tips and trips just to bring back to your operation and try things out really is what we learned this year. And, well, also we learned that the weather still conquers everything. <laughs> Anything that you learned about uh, how you approached the show when you went back and actually looked at the episodes? I looked pretty nervous the first few uh episodes but I, I think we i think we calmed down and looked all right for the last little part there i i you know i, I don't know i never realized now, now you're making me think now i gotta go back and look <laughs> well for, from where i said everything looked really good man and uh it, it, it was just uh nice to see you on there competing and kind of sharing some of that knowledge too that i know that other farmers are learning from along the way yeah it was uh uh you know every once in a while you get a question here or there from somebody so i hopefully hopefully i could help somebody out along the way you know i know, I know a lot of people help me out so just trying to uh you know kind of give it back a little bit if i if i can in any way you know hopefully i can make somebody's day along the way i don't know <laughs> so what does the off season look like for you here as far as in terms of lining things up for plant 21 uh going through and we're Putting high, sticking hybrids to fields, and uh, hopefully we can stick to that plan. Sometimes, you know, most of the time in Michigan it doesn't always go that way, but uh, just keep working on planters and equipment and uh, make sure everything's ready to go, and uh, we'll, I guess we'll see what happens, you know. <laughs> Any new tricks up your sleeve for this season? Uh, man, you know, I, you know, I, I really don't know. Uh, probably my biggest thing this year is uh, – plan for the worst and hope for the best. <laughs> well, i tell you what, man, it's been a pleasure watching you, and I wish you the best of success as we head into 2021 here. Yeah, thanks a bunch. It was, uh, it was pretty cool doing it on the, what was it, the podcast there yeah. last summer, so that was pretty cool. So thanks a bunch. Yeah, and we'll check back in with you again this season and uh, and see uh, what, what kind of progress you're making here. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Thanks.
Well, next up, we talked about the Corn Warriors TV show, and now we want to get into talking about the new Podfather series. With me is Chris Weaver, who is a former out of Maryland. And Chris, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hey, thank you for having me. Before we get going here, tell me a bit about your family's farming operation. So a uh, sixth-generation farmer there in central Maryland. We're primarily corn and beans. We also grow rye for the distillery. Have a couple several head cattle feedlot. I farm with my father, my wife Megan, my mom. Of course, uh, we have two great kids, Mackenzie and Charlie, and uh, we all farm together. Like I said, I'm six generations on the same family farm. With all that you have going on, it really takes having everybody all hands on deck to get everything done, doesn't it? Yeah, we have a pretty diverse farming operation. We also run a seed business consulting company. Um, so we all have our special jobs or everything we're supposed to handle on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, we're we're pretty well diversified, but at the same time, we make sure everybody can handle each facet of the operation on their own. And how did the Podfather TV show come on your radar? Well, I've got a face for radio, so you're really lucky that you have me. Um, I'm sorry for everybody that has to watch me at home because... Uh, Actually, I think I was the last one to be added on to it because Seth started asking me last year, about a year and a half ago, and I said no, no, and then finally he he just started videotaping me one day, and I came on board. So uh, like I kept telling him and Jared, I do have a great face for radio, but not a great face for television, but I guess they uh, wanted to argue with me, and I was the last one to be added on. So this season is just launching, the season one of The Podfather here in March, but it actually chronicles everything that happened in the 2020 growing season. Uh, How can you summarize uh, what that season looked like for your operation? So 2020 was full of a lot of uh, challenges, like everything else with COVID starting down the line. We we got dry there from about the middle of April on to about the 1st of August. So we had to figure out ways to increase high-yielding crops and fight the hurdle of the dry weather, which was pretty remarkable, and I think we did a very good job of it. You know, only getting a tenth of rain here, a tenth of rain there, we had to maximize out everything we're doing. Normally, we're not that dry. It really showed this year we had some of the best bean yields we ever had, but we also had some of the worst corn yields we've had. So when we looked forward to what really happened in 2020, We learned that a lot of our management styles and a lot of the new techniques and stuff that we have been doing over the years really pay dividends for us. So that's what we're going to continue to do in 2021. So from an agronomic standpoint, is there anything that you did differently this past growing season than in years past? Uh, One of the biggest challenges, and I'll give credit where credit's due, I was talking with Kevin Cobb one day on the phone and he said something to me about reducing stress in the crop during this dry spell like he was going through in Indiana. And we were talking about Monty's carbon and Monty's sugar. And I was like, daggone, that just resonated with me. So every week we'd go out and we'd spray Monty's carbon and Monty's sugar on the crop to relieve the stress of not getting any water. And as you see, if you watch the series and you get to the end, you'll see exactly how we turned out and how we did. And it it really paid dividends at the end of the day. So once you signed on and, and had those cameras following you, how did that experience turn out to be? It was a, a different experience. I mean, one of the main reasons I signed on is, you'll, is you get to see the series. My friend Temple Rhodes, we're both frat brothers. We're good friends. We like to pick on each other. Um, we're very competitive individuals. Temple and I uh, have been challenging each other for about five to seven years, and we always have a top yield contest between ourselves, who wins, who doesn't win. Sometimes he beats me, but uh, sometimes I beat him. It's better when I win. It's worse when I lose. But um, – Taking in consideration what all we've learned and 
the bigger benefits with the camera crews being there. The one thing he and I said early on in this show, we want to make sure we're educating people. We want to show you guys what we're doing, the goods, the bads. You know, we had a truck gate spring open on us. One of the days we're harvesting and Seth and the crew were there filming us. So, you know, I didn't want that to be shown because I didn't want everybody to see the mishaps. But at the same time, I turned back around. And I said, you know what? Show it because this is real life. I got lazy. I didn't get out of the combine. I didn't check the back gate. It sprung. We leaked beans out the back. We had to fix it. They got it all on film. So we're going to show that footage because, look, anybody that's in farming understands it's not easy. We always have breakdowns. We broke down in the middle of the season. I actually uh, broke a splined uh, shaft in our combine cutting beans, which put us another two weeks behind. So they weren't there to film that part of it. But as we're going through, we wanted to make sure everybody understood what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we're doing it. Uh, Perry Galloway, Matt Miles, really good guys down there in Arkansas, good friends of mine. I just got to meet Corey Atley here for the first time. But I can tell you, Temple and I made sure to share everything we're doing with you as we're doing it when they were there to film. And that education component is so important, and uh, you know we, we've talked a lot with some of the other competitors about their involvement with the Mac Group, and that's something that's near and dear to your heart as well. Yeah, um, Kevin and Terry Vissing started the Mac Group about two years ago. I tell you, if you want to get ahead and you want to achieve higher yields, don't waste money on new equipment. Don't waste money on increasing more fertilizer. Join a group where you can have a group of guys to talk to, to hear what they're doing. That money is the best spent money, and you'll get it back year one on your farming operation, how to get your soils right, what to be looking for, how to read the tests, and everything that you need to do, what products are working, what products don't work. You know, there's a lot. As farmers, we have to take fact and fiction and separate it out. You know, just because somebody tells us a product works, well, heck, I should be growing 800 bushel corn right now by using everybody's product on the market. Joining the MAC group is near and dear. I teach the bean part of the MAC. To, to the max school so you know with kevin's bean or corn expertise and my bean expertise we're bringing everything to you firsthand you get free reign to talk to kevin and i at any time terry at any time and we actually are showing you what we're doing on our farms real soil samples real everything and giving you data the first day of the meeting i tell you what that's some great education there and you can pick up a lot of it by going to that uh, Matt Group website and also uh, by checking out season one of The Podfather, and that's going to be on RFD TV, also Amazon Prime, and also find out about it on thepodfathertv.com. And uh, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here, and we look forward to catching up with you a bit down the road. Thank you. And uh, next up, we got a guy doing double duty here. Uh, he had. Uh, a great showing here on season uh, his first season of Corn Warriors, and now also on the Podfather, Corey Atley out of Ohio. Man, how you been? Pretty good, you? Been doing good. We had you on the podcast back over the summer for Corn Warriors, and uh, now you're also getting to show some of your soybean growing prowess, man. How's that been for you? Uh, it's been going great. Uh, first year of the show went well. I uh, just happened to have a really bad year on soybeans, so it wasn't results that we wanted, but I'm still pretty happy with it. Isn't that the way it works, man? They, they put you in front of the bright lights, and then everything just kind of goes off the rails, huh? Oh, yeah. Yep. It's the way it happens sometimes, though. But, I mean, that's that's life, and now you, you're uh, ready to regroup and, and look forward to uh, everybody will see you on this season one here, and you, you get ready to start uh, planting and, and filming for season two with it. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, season one's getting ready to air here on uh, March 11th, and so while they're watching that, we're going to be filming se season two at the same time. Uh -huh. uh, on the bean side, anything that you learned out of uh, your experience this past year that you'll take into the new growing season? Oh, yeah, there, there's always different practices. Uh, you know, I guess, one, I need to start treating, you know, these plots more of like a plot. I didn't realize that, you know, people actually spray their bean field 10 to 12 times for a plot. We spray two times, maybe three at most. We, we try to make it practical. So I guess if I want to get up to that 150 bushel range, we're going to have to be unpractical and just throw the books at stuff, which I'm not a big believer in. I want it to be able to, to, to be replicated. Well, you bring up a good point there because no matter how long you do this, you never stop learning, do you? No, oh no, no. I, every day is a new day. I mean, the people you meet, you network with, just like be, be, being here today. There's so many good, good growers here, and I'm just going to learn a bunch from, from each other. How much of what you do is experiential versus how much of it is going through data and, and trying to, you know, line it up best case scenario with what you've experienced in the past and what the data shows you? It goes hand in hand. So we have over probably 40 trials going on at any given time but we're also using old data and tracking data and keeping new data so we have our what we call like our our plan a or whatever that's our base lineup and so anything other than that is constantly being tested against it with different products different techniques different fertilizers and we're always seeing if we can improve on something and while many people not involved with farming don't mind a dry summer, not great for you guys, man. You, you did not see much rain at all. No, we was really, really dry. It hurt us all year long. Corn and beans, uh, corn was able to withstand it a little bit longer. The beans, it really hurt hard on that. It was just bad timing. We planted the beans late, didn't get the rain. It's just, uh, we always could have done better, but we're going to need Mother Nature to give us a helping hand once in a while. As far as the actual show itself, uh, how has filming gone? Have, have you gotten comfortable with that process, and do you enjoy that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something that's been fun to do. It's, it's Seth and Jared do a great job. They make it seamless. They can hook everything up about five minutes. They're not slowing down the operation. It's, it's, it's been a pretty easy transition. Oh, man, I tell you what, it's been fun watching you, and I enjoy seeing you uh, carry out your day-to-day -day tasks here. And uh, we're going to uh, tune in to the Podfather and, uh, and kind of watch uh, how you do your job there. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. While we were in Indianapolis, we had the opportunity to catch up with Seth Wood, the creator of Corn Warriors, to talk about the latest developments for that show, as well as his latest series, The Podfather, which began airing this week on RFD-TV. Seth, welcome into the show. Hey, thanks, man. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. How you been? Oh, man, busy. Super busy. We just uh, finished the crowning and the donning ceremony here in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, it was a very, very exciting time. So you have farmers in Maryland, you've got them in Arkansas, you've got them in Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana. Uh, that's a pretty wide swath of the country to cover, to capture footage, to do this show every week. How do you guys keep it all on the rails? Oof, it's, uh, we have a good team. That's really the bottom line. The Warriors were talking about it today and the Podfathers as well. It's all about team. Uh, it's the right people in the right positions at the right time. How have you refined the processes and, and just the shows in general to make a fresh product that uh, will, will continue to keep audiences coming back? 
Sure, that is the challenge every year. We want to um, bring fresh content and new innovative concepts and educational ideas um, to the audience so that they can uh, experiment with things and see how our guys are doing it. Um, some of our guys are very innovative and in trying things like intercropping or um, you know, just different products that nobody's ever heard of. and that, So that's exciting to be a part of. Well, for what I have observed, it seems like not only have those guys tried to raise their game because all eyes are on them, but also a lot of these uh, companies, the seed companies, the inputs, everybody is kind of raising their game because they know that uh, all eyes are on them as well. Yes, the uh, the companies are forced to keep up with the uh, the demands of the marketplace and the abilities of our farmers to continually produce higher yields. Um, it's it's really neat to see how the industry progresses and how it grows as um, new products are tried and new innovative ideas are experimented with and these warriors push for higher yields. So we wrapped up season four of Corn Warriors. Now we're getting ready for season one of the Podfather. Give us all the details on this show. Okay, so the Podfather launches on March 11th, um, Thursday at 5 p.m. on RFD TV. That's Eastern Time. So it's got five guys in it. We got Chris Weaver, Perry Galloway, Matt Miles, Temple Rhodes, and Corey Atley. And they're spread out a little bit throughout the country. And so they have a variety of different practices. Some of them are working with irrigation, some of them are non-irrigated. Um, so there's a lot of different farming practices that uh, we have in the show that people can view and learn from. You yourself have gotten quite an education doing this show, haven't you? A little bit. I try to pick up things here and there. Yeah. You could probably go grab some acres now, couldn't you? I don't know about all that. <laughs> These guys are rock stars. I'm not sure I could uh, even get the seed to come out of the ground, probably. <laughs> Excellent. So season five, we'll begin taping here pretty soon of Corn Warriors. Anything new or different that we can expect for that? So we got a new warrior that's coming to the scene this year. Uh, we'll be announcing that on March 15th um, on our social media platforms and our website. So stay tuned for that. Um, and there will be some really exciting experimental things that probably not a lot of people have seen tried on a farm this year in both series, I would say. Well, you've piqued our curiosity, so we're going to be watching again. Make sure you go check that out, RFDTV, CornWarriorsTV.com, and uh, give me that address for Podfather. Uh, ThePodfatherTV.com. There you go. So make sure you go check all that out. And Seth, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. We sure do appreciate it. And we see the best of success as you travel the roads throughout the country, chronicling the journey of all these competitors this season. Well, thank you, Brandon. It's been an honor to be with you. And we really appreciate you coming out and covering the crowning and the donning. And next up on Fast Line Fast Track, the March WASD report came out this week, and Jesse Allen is here with another Market Talk update to break it all down for us. Jesse. Well, thank you very much, Brent, and good to be back for another week of Fast Line Fast Track here with this Market Talk update. Well, in last Tuesday's edition of the Market Talk podcast, I spoke with Matt Bennett of agmarket.net immediately following the release of the March WASD report from USDA, which was a little bit less than expected, disappointed a lot of the bulls in the trade as they were expecting even some minor changes to balance sheets for quartered soybeans and really didn't see anything of note happen as USDA seemed to kind of 
punt and kick the can down the road again for another month here with the next uh, big report going to be our planting intentions report here later this month. I talked with Matt and said that even though we saw the uh, disappointing March report, we saw decent price action after the report, and we're still seeing decent price levels even though we've seen a few uh, midweek swings here and there and more volatility in the market. But Matt and I uh, talked about how it's important for producers to try and lock in some floors and lock in a profit with these great price levels right now. I preach it all the time. If you've got major profit margins on the table, uh, you got to lock in something, you know, at least quantify your situation to a degree. And I know someone might say, well, why would I want to sell at this level if I think we're going to get a chance for five fifty or $6 corn? Well, you know, it was the last time you sold 485 freaking corn before you even put it in the ground. I mean, come on, let's, let's be realistic here. So at least set a floor into the market, you know, give yourself flexibility. Um, if the put expires worthless, hey, you know what? You just had one heck of a good year uh, because most likely those prices just continue to rally or they at least stay the same. And so uh, I'm big on flexibility this year. I've been preaching it. I want to be very flexible. And what I mean by that is I don't mind, for instance, uh, one of the strategies we've talked about, it's like buying a 480 put option and selling a $6 call and maybe selling a $4 put, you know, for 16, 18 cents. I like that strategy quite a bit. But I don't want to do it on more than a third of bushels because I remember people doing stuff like that in 2012 as the market rallied, you know, and then they ended up not being able to raise the crop. And so I don't want to put a lid or a ceiling on too many bushels, uh, but by all means, uh, quantifying that level of profit margin on a 30 year acres, boy, that makes a whole lot of sense. And so, you know, again, uh, one other thing on this, Jesse, is that 1262 beans, I mean, you are not far away from being a dollar over your spring insurance price. And whenever you're in that situation and you talk about selling insured bushels, uh, you know what, whenever you're that far above your insurance price, you're actually making better use of your insurance policy because you're able to sell less bushels because you're so much farther above the insurance price. So in uh, corn uh, is no, uh, uh, you know, corn, you can't scoff at corn whenever you're looking at almost 30 cents above corn price for spring insurance already. And we're only what, nine days into March. It's just an incredible rally we've experienced these last couple, three weeks. Also, a lot of noise has been made about the weather conditions in South America, and that's been one of the number one drivers in our market here the last few weeks. But as we look towards spring planting here in the U.S., there's starting to be more and more concern about just how dry it is in the western corn belt. And Matt and I talked about that as well, and here's what he had to say. Jesse, I actually had my first in-person presentation out in Liberal, Kansas here a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, they're dry. Man, are they dry. A lot of uh, irrigation goes on in that part of the world. But, you know, some of those producers were telling me, hey, you know what, I may switch some corn over to Milo. Their Milo basis for fall was running around 50 over, whereas their corn basis for fall is running around 20 over. Uh, now, granted, uh, typically Milo is going to yield just or corn is going to yield just a little bit better. Uh, but putting the Milo on the ground is a little cheaper yet. So I think there's going to be some interchangeability on some of these crops, especially in what you would call maybe a fringe area. And I don't know that. Uh, I mean, I, one thing I will say that part of the world with it where the irrigation is, they raise better corn than what I do right here in central Illinois on some of those irrigated acres. I wouldn't call them fringe. I'm just they've got more options, if you will, uh, on different things to plant. And, and there's quite the demand in that part of the world for Milo, sorghum, you name it. You know, there's even some cotton in that part of the world. But, uh, you know, I think when you get in the Delta, whenever you get to the Panhandle of Texas and uh, some of these areas, I think some of these cotton acres could actually be impressive. I mean, with $85 cotton. So uh, there's going to be a lot of interesting moving parts. But 
I will say, if I don't get on here again before planning intentions, I think that planning intention number could be awfully large. Uh, you know, I know the USDA said 92 and 90. What if we're 94 and 91? I know that would be all-time record by a landslide, but when you see these sort of profit margins, typically a fence row to fence row discussion, something that a lot of folks are having right now. And again, those are comments from last Tuesday's Market Talk episode with Matt Bennett of agmarket.net. You can learn more by going to markettalkag.com and find us on all your favorite streaming platforms as well. This has been another edition of the Market Talk update for Fastline Fast Track in Nashville. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. And don't forget, you can find Jesse's daily market updates at markettalkag.com. Again, markettalkag.com. And you can find him by searching Market Talk on Facebook. So go follow him there. He also appears on the American Ag Network. And you can hear him host Your Ag Today weekday mornings about 6.50 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio Rural Radio, Channel 147. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, you know what time it is. It's time for another installment of Bushels and Cents with our buddy, the Hot Rod Farmer, Ray Hacks. Don't forget, you can check out all of his great multimedia content at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Cents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Hacks, the Hot Rod Farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. The increase in production that has been experienced across all segments of agriculture is rooted in the ability to know more. We know more about genetics, soil health, fertility, and herd management, to name a few. It is now time to learn more about your equipment through simple and inexpensive fluid analysis. Just as a soil test reveals the nutrients available to the plant, the testing of fluids is an early predictor of wear and possible engine failure. Engine oil, coolant, and hydraulic fluid needs to be tested regularly. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com, where steel and soil meet. And don't forget, Ray Bohax has launched Farm Machinery Digest Radio on Sirius XM Rural Radio Channel 147. It airs each Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern and again on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern. So I hope you go and give him a listen. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we head on over to the musical side of the house where we welcome in Ken Wilburn, artist with some great country music sounds coming out of Nashville by way of New York. He took an interesting path to get there, and I'm excited for you to hear all about it. Ken, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. How we doing? Thank you for having me. Ken was just telling me that he's coming off a busy week last week of Country Radio Seminar, which is usually in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, involves uh, all the folks in Country Radio where they all get together and hear the, the latest and greatest from artists and involved in a whole bunch of seminars about the uh, the country music uh, industry and you had your first taste of crs it's virtual this year but uh, what was that whole experience like for you well i mean it was great uh, there were there were so many great presentations and so many uh interesting things to learn about and uh you know got to do a lot of interviews meet a lot of nice people uh which is was always fun i mean half of this business is you know making connections and you know connections with people and you know getting them to you know respond on an emotional level to your music and and to you as a as a person so i mean every chance you get to to meet somebody new and to to talk about you know what you got going on and you know hopefully make a a, a good personal connection it's it's great there's nothing better and we're going to get things started this week with a song from ken wilbur this is freedom song on fast line fast track Staring back at me 
Ain't the man I used to see I've been walking the line a long time I need a change Breaking my back, working double shifts The weight of the world's getting hard to lift I'm starting to think I need to break a link in this chain Something's got to give This ain't no way to live Put me on a highway Interstate A dirt road To any place As long as I'm long gone Chasing down some blue skies In my old truck Turn the world out Turn the radio up And sing along To this freedom song tell your story we really got to go back to your birth because there's some events there uh in your early life that really shaped who you are as an artist and uh and developed a, a real true passion for country music traditional country music or just country music as they called it at that time uh tell us about what kind of uh, led you uh, to this point for, from an early stage in your life well sure um, you know, I, I grew up in upstate New York, and, and when you tell people that you're from New York, people you know usually assume, you know, it, it's kind of like the uh, the what is it, old El Paso, uh, you know, uh, picante sauce commercial or paste picante or whatever. Yeah. New York City. Uh, that's what people generally assume. But uh, you know, I'm definitely uh, I'm about four hours from New York City. Um, I'm in between Binghamton, New York, and Albany, New York. Uh, so it's definitely upstate New York, very rural. Um, I think I had a hundred kids in my graduating class uh, at school, so it was, it was pretty small, very rural, lots of farming, and uh, country music was big here. Uh, my my family, all of them were were into country music, and uh, when I was a kid, probably about five six years old. Uh, 
for my birthday, my, my grandparents gave me a humongous stack of uh, my grandmother's old record albums for a present. You know, they were kind of shy on money and they, they thought that would be a cool gift. And it, 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 in all honesty, ended up being the probably the best gift I've ever received in my entire life. And I mean, it was just full of, you know, Merle Haggard and Johnny Cash mm-hmm. and George Jones and, and Conway Twitty. And uh, I used to stand around the record player uh, listening to all these uh, amazing artists and and trying to emulate what I was hearing. So, I mean, I, I would sit there and just try to pick out every single note that, that Conway Twitty sang and try to sing just like him, you know. <laughs> what were your favorite songs to sing as a kid? Oh man, there were so many, but uh, you know, I mean, I think almost anything by Conway Twitty, I would just, I would just sing through the whole album that, you know, <laughs> right on through. And, uh, and I loved Merle. Um, always loved, uh, it's not love, but it's not bad. And uh, probably my favorite Conway Twitty song uh, later on in his career was uh, was Goodbye Time. Uh, Blake Shelton also had a nice cover on that one as well. But I, oh, I just love that song. And I understand even going back to, uh, to to birth, you were you were born premature, and that caused some uh, uh, some issues that, that forced you to uh, to deal with asthma, and that kept you inside a lot, which also kept you close to that record player. Yeah, it did. Uh, you know, I mean, there were there wasn't a whole lot I could do growing up uh, wasn't very athletic because of the you know the asthma and all that so I, I went a different route with it and, and developed a, a definite passion for music and you know I mean I, all day long I'd just be in my room playing music and making mixtapes and just <laughs> singing along that's awesome and I understand that uh, the, you know that that stack of vinyl led you to become an avid vinyl collection what what else is in your collection and uh, what would you say is your most treasured album oh boy um yeah I've got everything from from blues to jazz to rock and roll, folk music, classical music. I, I love it all. And, um, you know, over over the years, I've definitely branched out. I mean, I, I grew up, to be honest with you, in a, in a very uh, religious household when I was young. And uh, I was not allowed to listen to anything other than country music or gospel music. And uh, as I got older, you know, you kind of want to branch out and experience new things. So, uh, you know, you, you get into you know, your Zeppelin and your Rolling Stones and Aerosmith and, you know, yeah. Black Sabbath and any, anything you get your hands on. All the good stuff. <laughs> one of the one of the coolest things for me uh, as a fan of music, I tend to like to find whoever my favorite artists are, like Merle Haggard, for instance, and, and Willie Nelson, people like that. You start to look into who do those guys like, who who influenced them? And then you just start digging down the rabbit hole. And before you know yeah. it, you're a Jimmy Rogers and Django Reinhardt. And, yeah. you know, there's some good music in there. And there's a lot to be learned from, from those old tunes as well. I love that. What does the scene look like for collecting vinyl where you're at? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, we, we get some record shows around here periodically and we, we have a uh, one local shop, um, you know, but then there's, there's always Discogs, which, you know, it's like the world's greatest garage sale. I, I love that thing. You can, you can pretty much find anything that you're looking for, you know, on that website. So that's definitely, uh, helped me with my collection. That's awesome. And, uh, I understand along the way, you also developed an interest in theater and uh, cut your teeth in an adaptation of fame. And uh, it sounds like you were kind of bitten by the acting bug from there. Yes, I was. I mean, I, I did a lot of theater uh, starting probably around ninth, 10th grade, uh, somewhere in there in, in high school. 
And uh, as soon as I, my first show was fame, as soon as I got on stage, got up in front of people and, and started performing, it, it definitely, you know, brought me out of my shelf. You know, I, initially I was kind of a shy kid and that kind of went out the window once I started doing theater. And, and I think my real personality started coming out. So, uh, yeah, I love theater. Um, I've done a, a lot of it over the years. In fact, I, I went to college for, for theater. So I always joke that I have a, a BFA in, in BS. And <laughs> Which definitely helps in the music business. You know, it does. I, I think it's kind of an unconventional route for a for a country singer. But uh, you know, getting up in front of people and 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 learning how to work a crowd and and learning what makes people tick and what they enjoy and and having that stage presence and stuff like that. I mean, whether you got that from you know honing your skills in a bar or you did it on stage in a in a nightclub doing stand up or theater or whatever it is, the, the end results are the same. You still learned how to you know interact with an audience. Uh, and not only have you acted, but you've also directed. What what has that experience been like? <laughs> I love directing. It's uh, it, it's a lot of fun because you you're taking a blank slate and you you come up with your vision of what you want to put forward, and you know it's your job to get the actors to you know deliver what you're looking for, and uh, it, it's a whole different challenge. But uh, it's it's a lot of fun and definitely definitely something I've enjoyed over the years. And we should also note that uh, you met your wife, Amanda, during a production of The Music Man and then married in 2014. Three years later, uh, came along uh, your daughter, Ava. What, what does she think of dad's music? <laughs> I got I had a laugh because, you know, I mean, she 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 pretty much knows me as, as, as dad. So, you know, she doesn't. I don't. I don't know that she's quite figured out that that Ken Wilber that she hears on iTunes and and, and Spotify and all that good stuff is, is is dad. So she'll she'll tell it to play my stuff all the time. She's like, Alexa, play Ken Wilber. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's pretty cute. I, I mean, it's always you know I'm, I'm glad my little girl's digging it. That's awesome. Maybe she'll grow up with some musical chops as well. I hope she does. So you're acting in community theater there in New York, and you find a means to start a band there, Fly By Night, with a friend of yours, and we're helped by a couple other local musicians. So how did all that come together? Well, I mean, once again, this is kind of an interesting story. Uh, probably somewhere around the 10th grade, I was uh, approached by this fellow that, yeah, I'd seen around, but I didn't really know him well, um, a gentleman by the name of Will Gallagher, and he, he played the drums. And He's like, hey, uh, you just started learning how to play guitar, and uh, I've heard you sing. You you, you want to start a band? And, you know, I wasn't really doing anything, so I was like, all right. So we kind of got together, and we, we started jamming out at his mom and dad's house, and we, I mean, we didn't have any equipment, so we were we were jumping old stereo receivers into, into speaker systems and whatever we could figure out in order to make sound. And uh, we ended up doing a, a little demo in a, in a studio here in Stanford, and uh, – he had played it for for two of the bus drivers at the high school and uh we we knew them both um you know going to a, a small school and they were they both played one of them played bass and one of them played guitar so uh carrie fallett and uh and dan fallon ended up uh starting a band with us initially i think the plan was for them to just kind of get us started and figure out what we were doing and then they were like hey wow this doesn't stink Let, let's do this so we were we were together as fly by night for about 10 years uh, what what uh, what kind of a following did you build over the years uh, doing that? Well, you know, I mean, we did pretty good locally. We uh, there was a, a couple of local bars around that we uh, you know packed out pretty well uh, whenever we played there, and uh, you know we we did all right. Uh, kind of uh, didn't really have too many aspirations as a group to to go beyond that. Um, 
and so that was one of the reasons that it kind of fizzled out. Um, you know, for me, it, it started becoming more and more and more serious. And, you know, the, the other guys, some of them were, were older and they had families at the time and stuff, just, you know, a lot of conflicts and stuff. And it started, you know, becoming like, okay, well, I, I don't really want to get into this as deep. Well, for anyone familiar with the Albany area music scene there, you also spent a little time playing with the Southern rock group, JD Mistress. What, what did you take away from that experience? Oh man, that was a blast. Uh, I actually got brought into that group by a, by a gentleman uh, by the name of Rich Rogers, who uh, he played on my uh, first record. He played guitar and uh, I'd known the guy through, uh, through my uncle and uh, he'd heard me sing and stuff, but they, they had uh, had this JD mistress band uh, in the seventies and the eighties. And uh, they decided to reform it in the, in the early two thousands and late two thousands. And they kind of discovered that over the years, maybe their vocals weren't quite where they were when they were younger. So they were like, man, we got to bring somebody in that, that's got the vocals because I mean instrumentally these guys were were phenomenal. So they kind of gave me a call and I and I jumped in and it, it was great because they they were looking to do a lot more obscure southern rock stuff. So uh, you know I mean I grew up on Skinner and the Almond Brothers and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't know probably ninety five percent of the stuff that they were playing. I never even heard it before, so uh, it was it was quite the challenge. Suddenly I had to learn like sixty songs, and, uh, but it was it was a blast. I'm so glad I did it. So something else that fascinated me, you moved on from that to start recording your own solo project from a home studio that you put together. What was that whole process like? Well, uh, my buddy, Carrie Fallett from, from Fly By Night, when we uh, dissolved, we, we decided we were going to write some songs and I'd already had several that I'd written and, you know, I wanted to work on a solo project and, you know, he was cool enough to just, you know, help me out with that. And we kind of started out with uh, doing the whole home studio thing and, you know, I mean, we we met a lot of challenges. We kind of discovered, you know, to be honest, we really didn't know what the heck we were doing. We were just we we wanted to do something, and we figured, you know, all right, you know, we're we're gonna figure this out. So, we, you know, we we made quite a few mistakes, uh, you know, trying to figure out what we were doing. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, get to play the legendary Hank Williams Senior in a, in a production of Hank Williams Lost Highway, and. Uh, one of the guys uh, by the name of Michael Brothers, who uh, who played one of my Drifting Cowboys in this show, he said, you know, he's like, hey, man, I have a recording studio. You should bring your, your what you have on your record to my studio and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll finish it up there. So we ended up doing just that. And he had a connection uh, when he went to school to be an engineer. He went to school with uh, with Tony Cottrell, who uh, runs Lonely Dog Productions in, in Gallatin, Tennessee. And at the time, he was the front of house for, for Exile. So that actually was what brought me into to Nashville and working with, with Sonny Lemaire from Exile and all that is that, you know, he heard the project as, uh, as Tony was doing the, the mastering on it. So I want to get back to that, the, uh, the Hank Williams production, uh, how did you prepare for that role? Because that's a that, that's a pretty specific role. That's a, that, that's not an easy role. <laughs> well, I, I've been listening to Hank Williams. Oddly enough, I mean, you know, for for a guy my age, it's, it's not exactly what I would call common. But my dad was a was a huge Hank Williams fan, so I grew up listening to a decent amount of Hank Williams and uh, always liked his music. So when it came time to do the show, uh, there's not a lot of video out there on Hank, yeah. but there, there, there are some, and he had very distinct mannerisms because of, you know, I mean, all the back pain and stuff that he was, he was in. So, you know, I would kind of study some of the Opry videos and stuff like that. And then thank God there is just a ridiculous amount of radio material, oh, yeah. um, 
available for Hank Williams. Like he did that whole mother's best uh, series there. And I mean, it's like a 18 or 20 disc CD set, you know, with, with all those radio shows on there. Unfortunately, he took a lot of time to talk. Um, So you could kind of study his cadence and and, and learn to to speak like him, which was, was a really big challenge. But I I said to myself in the beginning, you know, especially dealing with somebody who was a real person and uh, country music, just, icon in fact i would say an american music icon beyond that um you have a responsibility to try to get it right and uh, definitely was was a challenge that i had a lot of fun with and you know i guess we're kindred spirits because if there's one person that i still listen to uh, more than anybody these days it's hank williams and that stuff has really stood the test of time uh, and what, what's your favorite song to sing of hank oh man um you know i've always loved I'm so lonesome. I could cry. Yeah. Um, one of my, one of my favorite songs uh, that he ever did. And then uh, of course, Hey, good looking. Who doesn't, who doesn't like that? Sure. Sure. Man, so, such good stuff. And it, it is amazing to think uh, the, the guy only lived to 29. I was just thinking this the other day when I was listening to him, on most of those recordings, he sounds like he's probably about 50 years old. Uh, yeah. so, so he sounds way older than, uh, th- than he ever lived to be. But uh, man, he he packed so much into that short career. It, it, you know, between you know Mother's Best and, and Garden Spot and all those other uh, that he did. I mean, the guy was constantly busy. It, it, it's phenomenal. Yes. Yeah, absolutely an amazing performer. And as a songwriter, I feel like uh, songwriters today, uh, if they haven't done it, and you're a songwriter, oh my God, go out there and pull out some Hank Williams and listen to him. I was, I was talking about this the other day uh, on an interview. And the biggest thing that I take away from Hank Williams as, as a writer myself is keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. And that's what he did. He, he dealt with very complicated themes and, but he did it in a very simple way. He didn't waste a single syllable or a single word ever. And that's what made him so great. Good stuff. So I tell you what, you, you were talking about uh, Michael Brothers and, you know, a lot of people, uh, I think, that follow country music think for it to have any kind of magic, it's got to be done out of Nashville. But uh, he's a guy that, that proved that, there that you know, as long as you've got the skills, you can do this anywhere and, and make it sound good, huh? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, a very, very talented guy. Another gentleman helped us on the project was uh, was Jim Servideo. And uh, the, the two of us, or the three of us really, you know, I think worked very well together and we brought in a lot of very talented local musicians. And, you know, I think we came out with something special, especially when you, when you kind of factor in that, you know, we, we were learning on the fly and didn't other than, you know, Mike didn't have uh, a lot of actual, you know, real training as to how to record an album. And it's a whole lot more to it than just hitting the record button. Yeah. Yeah. So you bring Tony Cottrell into the mix. What, What was it like working with him? Oh, Tony, Tony is, is one of my favorite people. Uh, I, I can't say enough good about Tony. He's just, he's just, uh, you know, I, I feel like I connected with him instantly. Um, he, he gets me as, as an artist, as a person and, uh, between him and Sonny, both, they, they know when to push me and they know, you know, when to kind of, for lack of a better term to, to coddle me, but they, they know what needs to be done to, to get the best out of me. And then they push me to do things that I didn't know that I was capable of doing, which is an amazing feeling when you, when you, when you're playing back something and you're like, wow, you know, when we started cutting this, I I was real tentative about this. I was like, ah, I don't know about this. I don't know if we should do this. And they're like, ah, shut up and do it. And you get it done. And you're like, Oh my God, I did it. It's great. (laughs) 
When it seems like that could take you one of two ways, you either get uh, d discouraged and walk away from it or, or you take the approach that you did and, and you learn from it and you kind of humble yourself to it. And, and you do come out better on the other side, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I feel like every time I work with them, I grow uh, both as a person and as an artist. Uh, just I mean, the first session that we did, uh, they they totally pushed me to go in an entirely different direction and, and tried to just change my entire way of singing and, and, and pretty much everything about me. And, and I think the goal behind that was that, I, and I, I don't really want to speak for them, but I think what was going on is they felt like, you know, Hey, maybe we got something here that we could do something with, but you know, we need to find out who we're working with and get a feel for this guy and see what yeah. he's all about, you know, find out if he's, you know, uh, going to be a jerk and if he'll take direction and if he's going to get, just get heated and frustrated and just take his ball and go home. And, you know, it, it turned out that, you know, I mean, I was there to just, essentially I, I believe i said to so many people you know uh, for the going into that first session you know I'm, I'm here right now just to shut up do what they tell me to do and and learn from people who have been doing this for a long time and are very good at what they do and i, I never stop learning from them so do you like that whole recording process just the the whole creative uh process behind that oh i love it uh so many artists don't enjoy working in the studio and they, they find it boring and tedious and it certainly can be. I mean, if you're spending six hours editing a drum track that can uh, <laughs> kind of get to you after a while, but um, you know, I love the creative part of it. And I, I love taking a blank slate and, and turning that into something. Uh, it, there's nothing like it. It's just, it's an amazing feeling. So after Tony had heard that mastered first project, he asked you guys to come to Nashville and record a demo session with, with Sonny. And uh, you cut three songs he had written, and I guess he had done one with uh, other artists that he had had written. What was that experience like to to be able to work with him the first time? Because I mean, here's a guy that that fronts a group that's been around for you know fifty years. Absolutely, I'm a huge fan of of Exile. I'm a huge fan of Sonny Lamar. I, I grew up actually listening to Exile, so I was a fan of theirs before I, I ever got to work with him. Uh, and then uh, now that I've, I've gotten to know him and I've gotten to know the boys in the band and, and now uh, I, I'm an even bigger fan uh, that I that I know them as people. But um, man, it was you want to talk about just <laughs> intimidation, uh, you know, walking in there uh, and 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 trying to perform in front of somebody that you actually, you know, really looked up to um as a as a musician and a writer and you know you you realize especially when you when you you hit my age that uh there's not a lot of opportunities that are just gonna you know come your way and, and when you get a big one like that uh you you got to make the best of it so to say that i was nervous would have would have been an understatement but uh you know I, I did my best and put my best foot forward and tried to give them everything they wanted and Fortunately, now, you know, we've, we've gone through several sessions and I've gotten to know everybody and, you know, it, it, there's a definite comfort level there uh, with all the folks involved. And <laughs> it's just it's a great process. And I'm, I'm so blessed to, to get to work with those guys and learn from them. Well, I think it's such a fascinating pathway to get to where you're at now because, you know, we've talked with so many artists that, that spent so many years toiling on lower Broadway and the honky tonks and, and other places around Nashville, just to, trying to get anybody to listen to them or, or just give them that one break. And, it, you know, some spend a long time chasing their tail before uh, something happens and, and some are still trying to figure it out. And, uh, Man, man, you just made uh, the most of those connections that uh, that, that popped into your life. Oh, uh, that's that's what you got to do. Um, I, 
it's it's scary whenever you're going to try something new. I mean, and I, but I would say the, the best advice that I give to anybody, not just, you know, aspiring artists, but, you know, anyone in life, uh, if you have an opportunity come in front of you and, and this is something that you really want to do, no matter how scary it is, uh, no matter how afraid you are that you might fall on your face, you, you got to get out there and give it a go. If that's what you're really passionate about and what you love, because you know, that's, <laughs> that's what life is all about. And if you don't take that risk, you're never, you're never going to go anywhere and you'll never reach your potential. Well, I tell you, where, where are you at in songwriting? Are you doing any of your own songwriting or, or working on any of your own material? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, I wrote or co-wrote, um, a little over half of my first record um, with uh, with Carrie Fallot and Sonny Lemaire and I had a couple of my had written by myself and uh, definitely here in the near future plan on uh, heading down to Nashville and, and doing some writing with uh, with Sonny and uh, you know, whoever else is uh, game to write with me. Uh, want to uh, want to learn as much from the from the people who really have uh, are masters of their craft. Well, after uh, after doing those demos with uh, with Sonny, uh, that that led you to record your second album in Nashville. Where did you cut that, and and what other kind of connections did you make down there through that whole process? Well, we uh, we cut the record. Uh, we did all the instrumentation and everything at uh, at Oceanway Studio Nashville, which uh, was a wonderful experience. And then uh, we did the vocals and the harmony tracks uh, at. Uh, the dog house for lonely dog productions. Uh, that's a uh, Tony Coffo studio in, in Gallatin, Tennessee. And uh, that's a wonderful laid back, really cool uh, environment. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I'd want to cut vocals anywhere, but there it's just, it's so relaxing and it, it feels like you're at home because uh, it is a home and <laughs> you, you get very comfortable and relaxed and you get some very good performances. So Sonny has been so instrumental in, in everything you've done here. You fast forward today and you've released three songs produced by Sonny and another one he co-wrote. I want to share one of those called You've Gone to My Head. Tell me about this one. Well, sure. This was uh, actually from our first session um, down in, uh, in at Ocean Way and uh, at the Doghouse. And uh, he gave me a couple songs to, uh, to pick from for our first session. And this was, was one of them. It, it immediately jumped out of me. I've always been a sucker for, for ballads and love songs. And, uh, it, it kind of reminded me of when I, when I met my wife, Amanda, and we started dating, you know, the, the feelings that were involved there after you've, you know, kind of gone driving home from a date, you know, and you just kind of feel like you're on cloud nine. And I, I thought it was a great song. I love the, uh, the harmonies on it and everything. And, uh, it's just it's just a great tune i'm so so glad we got to do a cut on that well here it is this is ken wilbur with you've gone to my head on fast line fast track maybe i shouldn't be driving got a little buzz going feel a little high the kind of shape that i'm in I find it hard to focus, it's like the stars in my eyes Gotta roll down the window so I can breathe You don't know the effect you have on me Oh, you've gone to my head I'm dreaming out loud all the tender words you say Got me crazy 
Maybe I shouldn't be calling Drove all the way home thinking About the sound of your voice It's a funny feeling falling to stop it as if I had a choice Maybe I should shut up before I say it too much But the room is spinning and I still feel your touch Oh, you've gone to my head I'm dreaming out loud All the tender words you say Got me crazy in love now I held you And you've gone to my head In this condition my Inhibitions have all gone away I'm not afraid to say how oh, you've gone to my head I'm dreaming out loud All the tender words you say Got me crazy in love now Standing behind that mic like you've been doing it for 30 years. <laughs> We've been doing it for a day or two. That's good stuff, man. Well, I tell you what, you're living out your country music passion, but like so many other artists, uh, you keep a day job working as a corrections officer and on the mounted patrol for the Delaware County Sheriff's Office uh, there in New York. How did you get into that line of work and how do you strike that balance uh, between the day job and doing your country music? Well, uh, I got into to doing the, the corrections thing mostly because of my dad. Uh, he uh, he was at me to do this for a long time. Just kind of felt like I should uh, should get into law enforcement. And it was something that was very important to him. Uh, I was uh, a manager for a couple of different retail chains uh, at the time and ended up uh, you know taking my, my dad's advice and went to work for the sheriff's office. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's definitely a it's a different gig. But um, I, I got to say, it's it's been very rewarding and I'm very thankful to uh, had the opportunity to serve my community doing that. And uh, you, you get to meet a lot of interesting folks and uh, you start to develop a rapport with, uh, you know, with, with the inmates you're around them every day. And uh, you learn a lot about their lives and what kind of led up to what, you know, went on with them. And it, it kind of is good because, you, you know, hopefully you can be a positive influence on them. And then also you you kind of gain a little bit of an appreciation for for how it's like uh for for other people you know i mean i, I don't want to make light of this but i mean i i lived a very a very sheltered life and a lot of a lot of the things that have you know affected a lot of people in in this country and the world uh you know drug addiction and things like that i i don't have any experience personally with that and and you know i mean i'm, I'm not better than anyone else that just wasn't the path in my life went in and so you 
you end up encountering people who have these these issues and you you learn a lot about you know what led them to where you know they found themselves and it's it's a fascinating case study for you know <laughs> for people in, in human psychology and then as as a writer there i mean it's it's gold so uh, do, do the folks you work with know ken wilbur the country music star Yes, sir. They do. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody at the at the sheriff's office has been very supportive of uh, you know my extracurricular activities, if you will. Um, and it, the cool thing is about my job, you know, we're we're able to bank our overtime, and uh, you know, so we can, we can use it as comp, and and they're cool about it. You know, if I got to go to Nashville for a month or whatever, they go, all right, buddy. You know, we'll we'll see you when you get back. Good luck. You know, knock them dead. You know, and where where else are you going to find that? What do you like to do away from? Country music. You get time away from from music and and away from uh, uh, your day job to be able to uh, do any other kind of uh, outside pursuits. Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm still uh, you know uh, involved in theater, and when the when the right you know project opens up, you know, I tend to jump on it. Um, it's been a little bit. I haven't really uh, had the right project fall in my lap, but definitely when it does, you you bet you I'll. I'll be on it. And, uh, you know, I like to spend time with, uh, with my wife, Amanda and my, my daughter, Ava and my daughter, Charlotte, and, uh, you know, do things as a family, just, you know, like everyone else does. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're, they're, the kids are hitting the cool age. So it's, it's fun because you, you know, you start to get to take them places and let them experience things and watch them experience the world, which is, uh, <laughs> just an amazing thing. That sounds like more fodder for material there. Yes, sir. <laughs> So what, what do you feel like the future holds for you in country music? Have you scoped out uh, any kind of a, uh, a roadmap for yourself going forward? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think everybody has goals. Um, I definitely, for me, my goal would be to, um, you know, get a single, you know, far enough along on the radio that, you know, we, we, do, we chart with it and, uh, you know, continue to build my following kind of, latch myself onto uh to a couple of tours and really get out there and and play my music for some folks and and get to meet all the, the great country music fans out there and and then of course uh you know the the biggest dream really uh for an aspiring country music artist i think is to stand in that circle at the grand Ole mm -hmm. opry and uh <laughs> be where all the, the legends before you have been so that's that's definitely a goal well you're working with some people that know how to get there yes they do so uh, in the more immediate sense, what what is the rest of 2021 looking like for you? I know that's kind of a loaded question as, as things still <laughs> continue to open up, but any kind of sense yet? Well, I mean, we're actually really excited. Uh, my second album, Ran Out of Sky, should be out uh, late spring, early summer. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a 20-song album, uh, digital release on that, as well as uh, CD and I'm really excited about this as a, as a, as a record collector, we are doing a vinyl press. Uh, um, I've done that. So I'm very excited about that. Well, we're definitely going to have to have you back on here once that thing drops so we can showcase some more of that music. How, how did you navigate that? I'm always curious because every artist's answer is different. I'm sure you heard this question a million times posed at CRS last week, but how did you navigate COVID and try to, get through you know as you're still trying to produce music and put this album together and and do everything you need to do to keep your career moving forward uh, what what did that look like for you well i mean you know it, it was it was a bit of a challenge um we were very lucky in that um i don't always get the opportunity to 
to do a project from from start to finish uh, in in for lack of a better term in in one sitting. So we had done all the uh, their instruments and, and all of that uh, before COVID actually started. So we had that, and then uh, we pretty much just needed to uh, to do the vocals and the harmony of vocals and and stuff like that. And that was a much smaller, more intimate setting. Um, so we were we were able to get you know everybody that we wanted was was more than willing to come on in and and do what they had to do. And, and <laughs> I think we we got great results and didn't we didn't we weren't hampered too much by by COVID in that sense. Yeah. So you've been playing guitar since 16. Any other instruments you play or anything that, that interests you that you may pick up along the way? Well, I've always wanted to learn how to play the piano. I, I haven't done that yet, but that's definitely on the bucket list, something to do. You know, I've, I've taken around a little bit with the mandolin and the banjo. Um, I, I say I'm far from proficient at either one of those instruments, but, uh, you know, definitely uh, tinkered around with them. But the, the guitar definitely is, is, my, is my best instrument other than my voice. Well, before we get out of here this week, how about we hear one last song from Ken Wilber from his first album, Rolling My Own. This is Throw Me a Bone on Fast Line, Fast Track. It's been so long since I've been out at night I've been on a short leash and that ain't right Ain't been on the prowl in a oh so long I'm in my cage, I got my collar Throw me a bone 
good stuff. I bet that song kills live, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun, and uh, all the thing we uh, we wrote that because the uh, the drummer showed up late, and uh, we went, went to go outside, and the dog messed on the floor, and we were like, "Hey, let's write a song about a dog." <laughs> Inspiration strikes in some of the craziest places, doesn't it? And that it does. So, what uh, do you remember? What was the first concert that you ever attended? I do remember uh, the first concert I ever attended was uh, was a package show with the, the New York State Fair, and it was actually Clint Black, Lori Morgan, and Alabama. Wow, that's yeah. a powerful show. Yeah, it was it definitely made quite the impression. You get get quite spoiled by that. What what what, oh, stu- what stuck out most from that show for you? Um. You know, I, I can't really think of any specific moments that, uh, that that jumped out in that show. I was just so excited to be, you know, part of live music. And it was, it was the coolest thing I'd ever experienced. Uh, <laughs> I knew I wanted more after that. That was for sure. <laughs> what, what are some of the other shows you've been to live that, that really stand out? Well, um, uh, another another package show that I got to to see, and oh my man! At the time, I didn't I didn't realize how how cool it was, but now looking back, I'm just like, wow, was I lucky to see this show? Uh, I got to see George Jones, mm-hmm. Vern Gosden, and Conway Twitty <laughs> all on the same bill. Oh man, wow! <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was wild. Uh, so definitely a lot of my childhood heroes right there in one show. <laughs> okay, talk about the voices that night, huh? absolutely good gracious that's excellent so i, I would imagine uh, since you've had the privilege of being able to see them you, you take just a little bit with uh w- with you each time you go on stage huh oh absolutely uh, i i learned so much from from all of those guys but especially conway twitty uh he was so emotive as a as a singer and as a, a stage performer that you know once again you you you'd go with the whole keep it simple, stupid. And he, he really didn't do a lot that was super flashy or complicated, but he got up there and he picked up that microphone and put his guitar down and he locked eyes with it, with the audience. And he had them just like that from the beginning to the end. Well, Ken, if folks want to follow your career online and on social media, how can they do that? And uh, this is important. How, how can they download your music? Well, uh, our music is available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Music, pretty much all the purveyors of fine music that are out there uh, across the internet. We're we're even on the on the YouTube, uh, so you can you can check us out there as well. Um, and uh, you know, keep up with us on socials. We're uh, we're at Ken Wilbur Country uh, at Facebook, and we also have uh, Twitter and Instagram and all that good stuff. So you know, come on down, check us out. You know, if you if you've got a comment or you know any any thoughts about anything we got going on. Feel free. Uh, we we always love to talk to folks uh, about how they're feeling about what we're doing and, you know, where they think we should go from here. Well, Ken, you're a great guest, man. And uh, I wish you the best of success with what you got out now. And and please keep us posted on this new music. And we'd love to get you rescheduled to come back here when you're ready to drop that album. And we can share more of that and uh, kind of dig into your your history and, and what's on the horizon a little more. Well, thank you. That would uh, that would be great. And thank you for having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And we want to thank you for joining us this week. And we want to say a special shout out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway, in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you go and check them out. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. So stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. Well, planning season is right here upon us. Are you in the market for a new tractor? 
sculptor or a planter? If so, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. Again, that's FastLine.com. And while you're on the website, please be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. No need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack. The FastLine catalog is still being delivered directly to your mailbox, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country. And don't forget to subscribe to the Fast Line Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Deezer, Audible, and Radio.com. And be sure to hit us up on all those socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here. So until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. 